Welcome to our podcast, We Are Exposing Mold. My name is Keely Severson, and today I'm here with my co-hosts, Eric Johnson and Alicia Swamy, and we have special guests. We have Jim from EarthBlock International in EarthBlock, Texas, and we have Lisa from Colorado Earth. Lisa Mori is a professional engineer and architectural designer who has been working in the construction industry since 2000. Lisa started building with Adobe Bricks while living and working in New Zealand in the early 2000s. There, she was involved in a design-build firm that constructed nearly 50 homes. From this work, Lisa published a book, Adobe Homes for All Climates, in 2010. Lisa's mission is to scale the natural building industry in Colorado by offering an affordable wall system made from locally obtained material. Lisa was recently recognized as a woman making contributions to reduce carbon emissions within the building sector. Jim Halleck is the founder and president of EarthBlock International. Jim spent his time in conventional construction as a journeyman roofer and carpenter. In the early to mid-80s and 90s, he was involved with the rehabilitation of distressed properties, real estate development, and acquisition. During that era, he came to learn the truth of conventional building materials. They are hazardous to health. Jim and his wife decided to leave California for rural Colorado and began searching for healthier, non-toxic building materials. He attended seminars on various green systems and found the answer beneath his feet. Jim leased an earthblock machine and completed the build of their home. In 1995, he founded the Earthblock Inc. and for 10 years built many homes of earth in southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. Recently, he is proud to have spent the better parts of two years co-founding Colorado Earth with Lisa Mori. Throughout his lifetime, he has been blessed with travel inspired by his mission for Earth Blocks to Mexico, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, Chile, Peru, Ethiopia, South America, Zambia, but most importantly, Haiti. During these travels, he has had the opportunity to meet and be mentored by many of the giants in the field. He now continues his earthen building career through EarthBlock Texas and EarthBlock International. Lisa carries on as the sole owner of Colorado Earth. Lisa and Jim continue to collaborate on various projects and look forward to continuing to support each other in their mutual missions. They both believe that Earth has the answers. Jim and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Our pleasure. You said you had a, a interesting story to share with us. Can you can you share your story with us? Well, it's uh, is it the story I mentioned to you about my wife's chemical sensitivity? Um, she worked at um, she's a psychologist. She worked at a uh, Kaiser uh, in California in Santa Rosa, and the hospital decided to build a new building for the mental health professionals, all the psychologists and psychiatrists into one building. Uh, now, Nora's been chemically sensitive her whole life, but she was okay in the old building. But when they moved her into the new building with you know new carpet and new paint and new upholstery and new glue and windows that don't open, uh, she immediately started a, a severe downward spiral uh, to the point where she quit her job and um, we moved to Colorado, and my, my primary concern when I arrived in Colorado was to find uh, a healthier uh, house for my wife. And uh, I explored uh, a lot of different mediums, uh, tire houses, straw houses, uh, neither of those of my, my suited my fancy. But I saw this video of a machine popping out 
300 adobes an hour and I went, that's it. And I, um, I leased a machine from New Mexico and built my first house. And that was 28 years ago. And I have never looked back, built of earth uh, continuously since. Um, how it relates to you is that it's an all natural material. <laughs> you know, there's no, no chemical poisons in it, uh, unless you're mining poison dirt, which we uh, try to avoid. And um, it's breathable. I, I mean, there's all kinds of benefits to earth and construction, fireproof, soundproof, bug proof, bulletproof. And, uh, but the most important uh, benefit, I think, of, of earthen walls is that they're breathable. And by breathable, that means they absorb and release water vapor. Okay, they will take in the toxins. If you have a truly breathable wall, they'll take them out. They're not giving you any, <laughs> and they soak them up, you know. So it's, it's all natural. And that's about earth blocks specifically, short term. But, but the mold issue uh, is, uh, you know, we don't mold. But particularly uh, if we use lime, if you use uh, lime as a stabilizer in the block or lime as the plaster, uh, you can't have mold because lime has a pH of 12.4 and mold can't grow there. It's impossible. So I had one, one of my uh, teachers advocate all hospitals should be painted with lime paint. You know, it's, uh, but they, they don't. They use latex. That's my, my part of the story. Lisa's got a story to tell too. Sure. Thanks, Jim. Well, I, I got into earthen construction really from an interest in, in natural building, green building, kind of from an environmental point of view. So after, after engineering, I moved to uh, New Zealand where I started a little art program. And there is where I was introduced to adobe or mud bricks, they call them down under. So I lived there for, for a handful of years and, and designed and built houses down there. You know, what really drew me to it was was the aesthetics as well as, as I mentioned, just the kind of beauty of the material and what you can do with it. And then, of course, learning about all the benefits. And the health has been something that's kind of, I, I feel like, grown and in increasing awareness in the last in the last few years. And people now seeking, um, you know, Jim and I for work um, in homes because they have these health sensitive sensitivities and organizations forming around supporting these, these people. So it's something that it's, you know, it's great to be here and be talking with you about it and, and share from our perspective. I think, I think one of the things that could, that's part of not just the, the, the line, as Jim said, and the products that we make the blocks with, but also just the energy efficiency. So less heating and cooling, forced air, you know, indoor air quality being improved. We can kind of jump into that, but I think that's a very, very much a big part of healthy homes and, and making sure that the air quality in, indoors is well performing and healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both for sharing your story. And yeah, Lisa, I actually wanted to dive into that, the energy efficiency portion. A lot of people within our realm, a lot of mold remediators, et cetera, builders, they often say that these sustainable buildings, they're built more tightly to be energy efficient. And I just wanted to know the way that they're building sustainable homes now, is it actually sustainable? And are Adobe's 
far more superior than these new buildings that they're coming out with. Yes, unequivocally, he said, because of course it, it varies from climate zone to climate zone, what you have to do to make that yes true. But let me give you a quick anecdote about energy efficiency. Well, first of all, what we do to build our walls depends on where we are. I'm in Texas right now fighting the heat, Lisa's in Colorado fighting the cold, okay? And we do well both ways, but it's a different system. Um, I built a house for a guy in Wimberley, uh, Texas, just west of Austin, about eight years ago. And he called me when I was in Colorado with Lisa about three years ago, just to report that we, <laughs> here in Texas, he was having you know, a heat wave. I uh, had been over 100 for three weeks in a row. And he said, Jim, all my neighbors are spending between 350 and $500 a month to keep from frying. He's a, a gizmo guy. So he has a gizmo on his thermostat where he can it punch a little button and it reads out how many kilowatts he's using and what it's costing him. So he keeps real careful track of his energy costs. He said, they're spending 500 a month. He said, I'm spending a dollar two a day. Now he did everything right. It wasn't just the earthen walls, but he does have 14 inch thick earthen walls. He has white lime plaster on the outside. He shaded the walls. This is real important to stay cool. He has a covered porch that goes all the way around the house. And he did a real smart roof. 60 to 80% of your heat loss and gain is through the roof. So we can build perfect walls and you can set a frying pan on, <laughs> ruin our best effort. He had a real smart roof that uh, vented uh, the air before the attic got hot. He had uh, insulation in the uh, ceiling and it's a marvel. You know, I love to take people in there. Fortunately, he opens his door whenever we want. And it's uh, one that I always take people to to get the earth block tour, especially I'm hoping for a hundred degree day, you know, so that we can go to Charles and uh, walk in. And, and you said sustainable, energy efficient. Yes. And, and maybe I should turn it over to Lisa for energy efficient in cold climates. We did a house together in Castle Rock where they put data loggers in the wall. So we actually have some real data, which Lisa has a grip on that. Yeah. So, you know, my, again, my background in, in New Zealand, we didn't have to insulate the walls and certainly kind of below around the hemisphere, insulation is not required for, you know, cooler climates. But here in, in Colorado, we are. I actually built a double wall with, with that cellulose uh, loose fill insulation um, between a three inch cavity. There's an energy compliance code now that a lot of jurisdictions have that require us to meet an energy performance compliance. And there's three ways to go about it. And, and the way that we, that we achieve it is through a performance method in which the whole building envelope is looked at a, as a whole. And we just got energy compliance for a house and steamboat. So it's, you know, 9,000 plus feet elevation and, and obviously a very cold climate. So back to kind of how your question, Alicia, about how we perform compared to modern homes these days. And you're right, homes are built to be very tight to kind of understandably kind of reduce, you know, leakage in the home and things like that. I have heard stories of the development that went up here in Colorado. And a lot of these timbers that we use um, are, are dipped in formaldehyde for bioretardant purposes. 
And the contractor and the producer assumes that there's going to be enough off-gassing that happens during transportation and construction so that when the house is built and closed in, that they have off-gassed enough. But in this one development, they, they have not. So they had been closed in and then people moved in and then we're getting healthy people are getting nosebleeds and all sorts of reactions to these to this off-gassing. And so that, that development actually had to be taken taken down. You know, Jim, Jim mentioned the kind of the breathable aspect, that ability to absorb and release vapor. And that's really the ability of the clay in the walls itself. So, you know, putting a cement stucco on a wall or something, you know, a siding or something that's drywall or any kind of non-breathable element on our walls, either inside or out, are going to kind of reduce that permeability or that breathability. So, but from an energy perspective, because our walls are at least 10 inches wide, and mine in Colorado are 15 inches with that gap I mentioned, they act as a thermal battery. So they're actually storing heat, either produced during the day or produced you know, inside during the winter, and storing it and releasing it very slowly. So that is how we're able to stay really efficient compared to a framed wall with lots of potential mitigation or migration through the wall itself, heat or water or whatnot. Because of that mechanism, are you saying that you don't really need like a heater or like an HVAC system or would you still need those items? Yeah, and that's, and that's obviously kind of unique to each home. You know, we're looking at the steamboat property. Do they need air conditioning? Probably not. The, the house in Castle Rock we're doing, we, they did um, some mini splits and they also had a wood burning stove of which they primarily use to stay warm. They actually have rarely turned on any mechanical heating or cooling. That's kind of the goal. And we have really thoughtful mechanical designers that look at our look at our walls and look at the whole orientation of the house and openings and whatnot and design something very thoughtful, geothermal, you know, there's there's a lot of possibilities now, but we, we never advocate for forced air. Never. Yeah. In a way, these type of homes reduce carbon emissions then, correct? For sure, yeah. I mean, not just in the production of the blocks and the production of, of the walls and all, that whole life cycle analysis thing of the embodied carbon, but certainly in the performance and the long-term performance, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I currently live in Arizona. Okay, say that I am a hypothetical client. I have some acreage out here and I want to build this home and I want to consult with you. Could you maybe just break down the steps of what that would look like for our audience if they were to consult with you to get a home built? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll, jump, I'll jump in, Jim. So obviously a lot of clients do come to me like with, with this initial request. And the first thing is, do you have land? Um, obviously we can't get further much beyond the conversation without having a piece of property to talk about. Then I usually start with some conceptual design. What is it that they're looking for architecturally, size of home, how do they live? Where is, you know, a site visit to the site? Very shortly after that is I'll request a soils report. So I want to see what is the foundation, what are the subsurface soil requirements there so that we can kind of look at what type of foundation system is needed. There's a lot of basements here in Colorado, and that's because we have to go often four feet plus deep. And so and excavating for a basement is very custom. So that kind of foundation system really drives the design. Again, will you have a basement? Are you doing helical piers or structural slab? From there, the design progresses into a full building set with engineering. Uh, we get it permitted and the blocks are made and the walls are constructed. Working with masons kind of in different locations to to help them understand how these blocks are laid, how they're finished, how lintels are set in, how bond beam is poured at the top of the wall. 
that's our process, really from conceptual to finished design or finished construction. Everything that Lisa said, but the architectural parts and, and the structural part and all that stuff is her, her uh, forte. Uh, when I think, when you ask that question about you're a brand new client, you've got this land, my first question is, do you have clay? Because we, we have to have it to make blocks. And there's two ways you can get the blocks at your site. Uh, you can have them made there if you have uh, the appropriate soil. We have found that it's frequently more efficient to have them made by somebody at their plant, like Lisa has, you know, to get them just right and then ship them to you. A lot of people have a romantic desire to build their house out of the dirt that they're on, and um, you can. I did that exclusively for a couple of decades. Didn't have a block plant. I always rolled my machinery to the site and used either their dirt or we had some trucked in from someplace close. One of the limiting factors that we have is just geographical. There aren't enough of us is, is part of the problem. I had three calls last week, one from Pennsylvania, one from Virginia, and one from North Carolina. And I'm like, gee, I wish we had somebody on the East Coast, but we don't. And uh, not that I know of, anyway. I, if there is, I, I sure want to know. I'll send them lots of business. Because the blocks are heavy, <laughs> very heavy, and the walls are very heavy, it becomes uh, expensive to truck them. You know, you've got a, a radius beyond which that $3 a mile for 1,200 blo blocks gets cost prohibitive. Our goal, both of us, in fact, all of us in this business, would be to have earth block plants regionally everywhere in the United States. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. I wanted to go back on one thing that uh, Kaylee said earlier about uh, alternative housing, looking at alternative housing. And I frequently bristle at that to build out of something that rots and burns and the bugs eat. I mean, it's, it's good stuff for violins, pianos, you know, right on. But you wouldn't want to build a house out of it. California loses, you know, six to 10,000 houses a year to fire. So it's a, it's, a, it's a battle we need to fight. And the thing about alternative construction, everything's alternative except us. We've been doing this for 10,000 years, not Lisa and I personally, <laughs> but our predecessors, the giants upon whose shoulders we stand, have been doing this, uh, as Lisa pointed out in one of our presentations that the walls of Jericho are 10,000 years old, you know, and they keep finding them. This, this new stuff where they take the drones and they can see through the ground and they just found this huge city in Egypt, gazillions of blocks. Of course, it's all earth blocks. And uh, the pharaoh that built that city, I can't remember his name, the third, somebody, Tutankhamun the third. Anyway, he stamped his initials on all the blocks, millions of blocks. So he was real proud of his, his block plant. And that was 3000 BC or something. So that just a little rant on alternative construction. You know, I can have a lot of respect for that, Jim, because I have that same complaint when people call herbalism because I'm, an, I'm a licensed herbalist. When they refer to herbalism as alternative medicine, in my head, I, I say, I think you mean the original medicine. So I think we should refer to your housing structures as the original housing structures and not alternative. Right. No, we're not alternative. And, you know, we always get the, the question, well, how much do they cost? You get that one all the time. And, um, of course, that depends on your design, for starters. And so you can't give a flat answer to that. But they want to compare it to something. And it used to be, a couple of years ago, that, and Lisa can chime in on this too, that I would say we're 
comparable to other masonry products. I mean, it's a masonry unit. And a couple of years ago, I would say we're a little more than uh, sticks, just because of the labor. The materials aren't yet. It's if you got a house that takes 10,000 blocks, you know, it takes time to stack those rascals and they're heavy. So uh, the labor thing. But now that uh, labor has gone through the roof, I think we're probably uh, cheaper. But the other thing is that the other thing, answer I would always give to that is what time frame are you talking about? The cost. Is that turnkey what the banker wants to know when you walk in the door? Or is that the cost of the building over time? Because if it's the cost of building over time, we're the cheapest thing on the market, hands down. The energy costs are significantly less. Maintenance costs are zero. And how long do they last? You know, a stick house, I think the average lifespan is somewhere around 70 years. We all know about the 200-year-old farmhouse in Pennsylvania, blah, blah, blah. But the average is, you know, around 70 years. And when people ask me how long they last, I jokingly say, uh, I guarantee him for the first thousand years, come get me in 900 if I'm wrong. It won't burn. The bugs won't eat it. It won't blow over. We're tornado proof. We're here to stay. If you stabilize the blocks, we can even take a flood. If you flood a stick house, it's over. It's all wet and moldy and rotty and you just got to knock it down. If you flood an earth block house, you go in and providing the blocks were stabilized, you go in and sweep the mud out and move back in. It's a no-brainer really when you when you know about it. And then again, I mentioned, I don't know if this is why we were on the air, it might have been before, but about lime. Lime has a pH of 12.4 and mold can't grow there. It's impossible. So if you stabilize your blocks with lime, if you use lime plaster, lime is your friend uh, if you're in the mold business. <laughs> or actually, lime is your enemy if you're in the mold business. If you've ever watched uh, the television series Bonanza, there's a Civil War fort not too far from the Ponderosa where Little Joe and Haas and they'd always get in fights with the soldier boys from Fort Churchill. Well, that's a real fort. That's down uh, near Virginia City. Uh, out in the middle of Nevada, and it's an adobe complex. Mm-hmm. And it was built in military style with the big overlapping eaves. The porch is all the way around, so the walls are all sheltered. Good for the desert heat, lasts forever. When I found people were getting chemically sensitive, I would send them out to Fort Churchill to see how it felt, and everybody would recover. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And you actually answered a lot of my questions. Thank you so much, Jim. But one important question that I had, and you had mentioned, um, you know, the fires in California. How stable are adobe blocks against earthquakes? Another question we get all the time. And um, just fine if reinforced correctly. Any, any masonry building, if it's a cinder block building in California, it has continuous vertical rebar encased in concrete to hold up the building. It's not the cinder blocks. And so Lisa and I have a mutual friend, now deceased, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Fred Webster, was the leading seismic engineer in California for 40 years and designed a lot of adobe houses in California. Now, the, the reinforcement was extensive, and it, it consisted of, in those days, vertical and horizontal rebar, either within the wall or between two two widths of the, to give it the, the structural resistance it needed. Now, Fred worked with an engineer in Lima, Peru, Marcial Blondet. Marcial is a, a professor, an engineering professor at the Universidad Católica in Lima. Lima, uh, Peru shakes all the time. I mean, it just, it's earthquake after earthquake after earthquake. And a lot of people get killed uh, because peasants in the Campo are all building out of adobe because it's all they have is mud blocks. 
but they don't know anything about building. They don't have bond beams. They don't have reinforcement. They don't have, and so they have an earthquake and they all fall down and they get killed. And it's terrible. Consequently, the university is keenly interested in finding reinforcement systems for Adobe that are affordable. The people out on the Campo in Peru can't, can't afford, uh, you know, truckloads of rebar. So they did a lot of tests, and they have a full-size shake table at, at the university. And um, they did a lot of tests, and they came up with, they did a lot of stuff with reeds and fibers and all kinds of stuff. And, and a lot of success. I, I had the good fortune of visiting there uh, some years ago and saw the shake table and talked to Gladys, the lady that ran it for 20 years. And uh, we went out from the shake table building, and they had a small building, Adobe building outside. And I said, what's this one about? And she said, well, we built one of these because this is this one did the best. This was the system that worked the best. And um, we call it uh, the basket. And it's it's the earthen wall with mesh on both sides. And as the walls laid up, you put through ties through the blocks, one foot on center. Then when the building's up, you put the mesh on and you tie those two meshes together. And uh, I can send you, Lisa has it too, videos of the shake tables in Lima where this was tested. And they couldn't knock it down. They can't knock it down. I mean, the thing would do this, but it wouldn't fall over. And Fred, who worked with Marcial in Lima, also did shake tables in California. I can't remember if it was Berkeley or Stanford, but he had videos also. And the, the kind of the interesting story about that is that the shake tables are very expensive. And so they didn't want to build a building with no reinforcement, knock the whole thing down and build another building. So they built a building, no reinforcement. They shook it a little bit. Corners start to crack. They stop. They patch the corners. They put a bond beam on it. They shake it till it cracks. Then they put a roof diaphragm on it. They shake it till it cracks. Anyway, this thing had gone through, I don't know, seven, eight, nine earthquakes before they got to the final one where they had actually put the basket on it. And they called in the press, the TV stations and the newspapers and stuff, you know, check it out. We're going to knock it down today. This is the last one. Couldn't knock it down. Could not knock it down. And their shake table, the shake table in Lima actually shakes. It goes like this. You'll see it on the video. But the one in, I can't remember if it was Berkeley or Stanford, but anyway, they're measuring ground acceleration. So they run the table and stop it. Bam! Like that. And this building would just be like that. And just come back and they couldn't knock it over now unfortunately that reinforcement system is not code approved in california it's something you know if our little earth building group had the kind of finances that the concrete industry had we would send some representatives out to california and lobby the building department to make fireproof affordable buildings because it's the reinforcement that keeps earth earth block or adobe buildings from being common i mean they were real common in california for you know since the spanish got there but since we got building codes they're not and they're not not because they're outlawed but because the reinforcement is cost prohibitive it's almost like a, a tragedy in waiting i feel like because we're seeing the effects of climate change and these climatic events are going to keep occurring fires flooding etc and the integrity of our buildings is just can't withstand these things and i'm wondering if you jim and lisa have you guys been trying to maybe reach out to these building associations to push maybe in the direction of of builders doing more adobe style homes or um i i think that 
What, you know, as Jim mentioned in California, that's a really difficult market. And I did hear of an Adobe house just got approved in Southern California. So that was quite a big accomplishment. Um, There's definitely some champions down there that are doing good work and doing a lot of good code work, building code work. So so it's not impossible. And, and as I mentioned, I practiced in New Zealand, which is very seismic. So, you know, equivalent seismic activity to parts of California. So we were, we were, there was an earth building code that's very extensively written for New Zealand. Um, again, approved vertical reinforcing, horizontal reinforcing throughout the wall. What it really takes, I find, is, you know, just with the kind of like with any, with any change, you know, if you compare ourselves to say the organic food industry back in what the 70s or so 80s I'm not sure but it's a consumer driven desire so having you know having more of these houses go up I think both Jim and I are seeing some shift right now where developers are kind of starting to to show interest so we can make a a larger impact in larger communities and that's been more recently driven by I think the cost of lumber also this kind of driving you know green building growth so Yes, while we are happy to support and educate building departments, it really ha- the the, edu- the desire to learn and, and want to do so has to come from those who are pushing on it. We are a a small boutique niche market and and not funded by a large association. So doing a lot of that outreach and marketing is difficult for a niche market that's that's trying to keep things keep the lights on and keep going. So yeah, yeah. thank you, Lisa. I you know when I think about adobe homes and just conventional homes it's like it just seems logical as a more eco-friendly way of living because i mean when you have to build homes you have to do massive deforestation right you have to tear down our trees that reduces our oxygen that reduces the ability for the planet to cool down and just using mud straight from the ground i mean it's like there's no comparison to me uh, in my own mind you know what i mean yeah Uh, you know (laughs) well and and you and you are unique unfortunately even when i first got involved in this work my parents were envisioning me me building these mud huts and the, the jungle of you know and poor Lisa, what's going on down there? And uh, and it wasn't until they came and visited me that you know they, these were actually million dollar beautiful homes, and and again fell in love with it. So families over their life. I think the more beautiful examples we get up, there's a stigma against you know even in developing countries like Africa, they want it, they're wanting to gravitate away from their traditional construction because of the social stigma that they think concrete block is more desirable from an you know economical point of view. So we're drifting, but I think it really is going to take advanced progressive countries like ourselves and to bring it back to the table, to the to the high performance home methodology. And you know, and, and now we're you know with the we're seeing new grants come out and new study new new money put towards studies and testing of this of this material. So there's definitely always new opportunities, but certainly greater ones now, perhaps. Jim mentioned earlier, trying to find you guys was like a needle in the haystack. I I mean, I was getting hit left and right by websites that are no longer functional. Mm -hmm. And it was almost breaking my heart. Like, man, this is this is the original way of building homes. And there's not a lot of you guys. And I know that on Jim's site, he does do workshops. Now, Lisa, I'm not sure if you do as well, but if people are actually interested in learning more or wanting to build their own homes, how can they reach out to you and get that going? Send an email. I I really wish that I could do workshops like once a month because the demand has increased 
significantly. It's going up almost in a logarithmic way uh, suddenly. I don't get it other than, you know, the cost of lumber is one thing, or maybe people are just getting smarter here in Texas. It's it's kind of a joke. I say people, you know, bulletproof has become really a big deal. You know, it's not about health or, you know, fireproof. <laughs> they want bulletproof houses. All right. You know, we can do that too. It's not a problem. It's nuts. But are they nuts? Well, I don't know. You know, I guess time will tell. But we have what they need anyway, which is, you know, bulletproof blocks. Obviously, I do hold workshops and have held workshops in the past, and they're great. We usually get a client from them, you know, from the 10 or 15 that show up. They're a lot of effort. They're a lot of planning. They're they're a lot of work to kind of put forth. It does require five days of someone's time to come and work for free, you know, as part of a workshop. And they're always a great group of people, very enthusiastic, eager to learn, taking notes, you know, great students. I just question right now if, you know, how we best disseminate the information. And I think it might be from, you know, really kind of training masons, training professionals, training architects and engineers. Because they're the ones that are gonna that are also you know infiltrating to the to the market and to the homeowners. I've had a real passion and desire to kind of get into schools, you know, train up our young engineers in university, get in the elementary schools, give them little baggies of clay that they can make their own bricks with. And so I think the I think that the workshop, from in my point of view, needs to needs to shift a little bit and and be again more of a kind of professional outreach and from our growing youth who are kind of coming eventually going to be one, one day our, our professionals. <laughs> so that's one point of view. Dwell Earth is another earth promoter, and they do workshops, but it's the same one over and over and over. The preparation becomes less significant. And uh, Lisa and I, when we were doing we always built something, Babs. Build a brick shit house. You know, that's what we did. It was, you know, took them all the way through the foundation to the roof and everything else. If you, if you te- keep it to a classroom and a little hands-on, and do the same thing over and over. You could do it. But she, Lisa's also right. To really reach a bigger audience, we need a bigger pulpit. You know, we need the building departments and the universities would be, if they would put earth and building classes in their architecture school and in their engineering school, that would really help. One of the hardest things we have is finding engineers. What is that? It's like we have to educate everybody every time. You have to work with them in advance. There's obviously the right way to do it, and it's not that hard, but you just, it's like you're training people every almost every time you build a building, unless you've got some subs you can use over and over. These are some of our, our difficulties, you know, is, is in expanding the thing. Now, I will say I've built in eight states, and I've been in a lot of county building departments, and this is another thing that's is tough that it's not a national code. It's like every county does what they want, you know. So every time you cross a county line, you got a new building department, and uh, you have to find a, a friendly face down there. I was stunned and amazed when I moved to Texas, and the first time I went into the San Antonio building department, and plopped a brick down on the electrical inspector's desk with an electrical box on it. This is the way we want to do this. And your guys are out there and they won't do it. And it was amazing. It was like the guy just looked at me and said, well, this is the way to do it. This is the right material. Where'd you get this? You know, and I was telling him about it, blah, blah, blah. He said, oh, great. He says, I grew up in New Mexico. So all of a sudden we had a friend and the, the whole San Antonio building department has been gung-ho. I mean, they are helping us. We have a little organization in San Antonio, Earth Construction Initiative, and we actually have two people from the city in the group and on the board. 
from the building department. So it's, it's a good inroad, you know, and we just have to continue making those inroads and we have to continue making more of us, leases and gyms. It's not everybody that'll jump into this. It's not the norm. The equipment's expensive. So there's hurdles. You have a program avenue for developing more leases and gyms? That's a great question. You know, I, I'm seeing, interestingly a lot this year, students from university here at CU Boulder and School of Mines um, reach out to me for an internship. And they just, you know, kind of similar to myself at that age, was just had a real draw towards it. And so I'm very, very open to kind of bring on, you know, and, and even people that want to start their own business, they have had a few visitors this year come and can I check out your yard? And where can I get the same equipment as you? And so I think, you know, understanding what this market needs, and we're not so much worried about competition, but, you know, really kind of establishing maybe our own little, our own little region and place that we service and supporting each other in that. So I think if someone was really interested, that while we don't have kind of a, a program or a formal, you know, process for that, I think Jim and I are both very been to kind of disseminate the information. And I mean, there's a conference every other year in New Mexico called Earth USA. And that's kind of where a bunch of us Adobe people get together from around the world and share papers and stories and um, talks. It's a great, it's a great community. It's really actually become a family for me. But I, I have heard of a, a paper, a research paper that someone did about how kind of break down some of these either cultural associations of, adult, of you know, these disintegrating, you know, mud blocks, mud bricks in the middle of nowhere kind of thing to, you know, beautiful homes that they are and buildings that they are. And, and really it takes the just good professionals doing good work and I think hopefully supporting each other and doing so. Amazing. Well, Keely and I are going to drop off our husbands to uh, <laughs> your doorstep so they can learn. The stats right now is 50% of residential homes have mold, 85% of businesses, those buildings have mold. There is a huge explosion of people with sensitivities. I'm talking thousands, thousands of people that are being driven out of their homes, can't even go into a grocery store, living out of their cars, tenting, camping, because they cannot stand the toxicity that these homes breed from the materials that are used. So just knowing that you guys exist and knowing that there is a way to live your life in a more healthful manner that doesn't include you living out of your car. You can actually live in a structure. It just has to be built out of the right materials. And these materials are actually very climate friendly. It can withstand these major climatic events. This is such an important message. We are 100% your supporters. If we can help in any way, shape, or form to bring you guys up, help your businesses, refer clients, we are there for you for sure. So I just wanted to let you guys know that because, again, we're seeing the people that are suffering with what we've suffered with. There's just so many people dealing with a lot of stuff and losing their homes, and they just don't have to if they're able to live in something that's more sound for not only for the environment but for their own bodies as well yeah i wanted to say one more thing and it's and it's back to the health aspect and kind of the interior home and and i know a lot of the people listening might not be thinking this is great but i can't i'm not going to kind of build a new house right now or i think there's ways to make and initial improvements on the home in, in which people are living in and there's some been, been some good research done just on internal clay plasters putting a new type of coating on the in, inside of our inside of our walls 
I think it does restrict some of the humidity issues and mold issues. And, and Jim, I, I think that, you know, you and I probably, there's people in this industry that are they're applying lime plasters and clay plasters, American clay and some others. That's one thing that I would kind of advocate for folks to look into if they're one should make some initial improvement. I mean, obviously what the Adobe and the earth blocks do from a high performance level, they're structural, they're soundproof, fireproof and all these other things, but to try to get some of the benefit of that healthy inside environment, you can, there's now clay, clay panels, you know, hemp replacement for drywall. And so there's some new emerging products on the market now that I think could be things that could be used for renovations. Smarter Building Systems has a lot of really great products. Non-toxic uh, is the whole, the whole deal. And uh, Safe Coat is the producer of sealers and paints and stuff that are zero voc well i just wanted to comment on the insanity of stick built houses that incorporate copper plumbing into the walls when the lifespan of the copper is around 30 years they expect you to completely rip out your walls remove all the copper and replace it obviously if you expect your house to last more than 30 years this is going to be a problem so i imagine with the uh, adobe houses the rammed earth you uh, probably put all the plumbing and electrical external where it's easily accessible. Um, you can. Uh, that's a smart way to do it. Uh, that's what the Europeans do. That's what the house in Castle Rock, they did all their electro on the outside, made it real easy. Most people don't. And, you know, there's the electrical electrical installation is a, is a discussion. I have found that, you know, through the floor is the easiest. Or we build chases or... Well, thanks to uh, all the chloramine that they're putting in water these days to control the bacteria, the copper pipes are breaking down faster than ever. So I would anticipate that if you have a rammed earth construction, after about 30 years when it starts leaking, you'll have no choice but to put the plumbing system to sleep and ex install an external system anyway. Good point. Is that what you guys are seeing more often now, um, installing externally instead of internally? Uh, not too much. Do you work a lot with copper plumbing or do you, I, I guess, I guess I really don't know if this is a copper plumbing issue or if this is a PCR plumbing issue or if this is an all plumbing issue where we should also begin a conversation about maybe having, having all of our plumbing, plumbing being exposed for, for this purpose. I mean, I think that's a really good point. You bet. But it sounds like you work really personally with the people that you build for so that they would always have that choice right almost everyone is a one-off that makes know? sense and, uh, yeah put it in your side notes we recommend exposed plumbing here at exposed no, the other thing <laughs> i've done this in a couple of houses where it's not exactly exposed for instance in the first my first one my house in colorado uh, it, it had to do with the design. I had in I had a basement, a main floor, and a, and a second story. And in the basement, in one corner of the of the basement, was the laundry room and the bathroom for the downstairs bedroom. And then on the main floor was the master bath. And right back to back with that was the kitchen. And then on the top floor, there was the bathroom for the master suite. So all the plumbing was vertical. You know, I wasn't running pipe 50 yards down the wall, you know. So I just built a big chase in the wall and ran all the plumbing up and down the chase. And you could open the door and look at the plumbing. That worked well. It's another way around it. 
I think the main thing is just having having access to the electrical and plumbing. You know, we changes are possible. People that want to kind of do additions or cha- take down a wall, these things can happen. Um, you know, again, in the cavity or allowing a, a kind of a internal kind of chase, so to say, in the wall itself. So we can we can as long as we can access things, make changes from the top of the wall or bottom of the wall or floor, as Jim mentioned, or you know, if we can think about design and having a framed wall in the in, inside of the house where a lot of the, the plumbing goes for kitchens or laundry or whatnot. So it's it's just something that we that we consider, but certainly it's very possible to have it all be safely part of the wall system. I was just going to say that if you're building a thousand-year house, you better plan for the uh, plumbing to last a long time or be replaceable. The building's going to last longer than pretty much everything else, <laughs> including the residents. Right. I, I just loved your point, how you were talking about like the, the pyramids, you know, and like Egypt. And I didn't even know that those were made out of adobe blocks. That's incredible. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. Yeah. Well, what, the Great Wall of China is pre- predominantly adobe and the walls of jericho i have a question for your your group what would help disseminate the information or would there be additional testing or what would be helpful that from our side that we can support people here that are listening and have these concerns lisa do you have like a podcast or a newsletter or something do i or your company i mean because what what i feel like you're asking is how can you reach more health injured people Mm -hmm. Uh, in our audience, how can what we're doing be a bridge between your work and the people who right. need your work? Well, I'm, yeah, right. Because I'm so, putting together these kind of technical white papers right now that really kind of speak to some of the the, the technical specifics of our of our wall system, everything from foundation system to finishes. So if there, if I could do one specifically on this topic. And what's what's this topic to you? Uh, this topic to me is is really about healthy living on inside the home like how did how did the product itself really benefit someone's just health while they're living inside the home i mean from mold from i i want to hear kind of what are the level the different level of sensitivities i mean i i i'm hearing mold as one as is are there others so a large majority of the people who have become chemically injured Mm -hmm. the gateway in which their chemical injury occurred is through toxic mold yeah and so so that's one population and then there's you know there's like my husband his gateway was spraying pesticides working on his farm since age six right um and then there's other people maybe through like a chemical war exposure or Mm -hmm. kind of environmental exposure at work and so those routes can all be different toxic mold is something that we specifically stick to for research purposes. We have to continue saying toxic mold, toxic mold, toxic mold, because Eric's connection to an original research instrument is our last hope in getting any real researcher trying to find some answers to what this is hap- what this is doing in the environment to really prove this, which would then solidify your work in terms of verifying that healthy homes are needed right. because that's absolutely a, a piece. We would really be happy to participate in any education outreach efforts in terms right. of 
educating your audience in the red flags to be aware of the way that their homes are making them sick because that's actually our greatest challenge or my greatest challenge as a healthcare provider actually is when I tell someone you have nerve damage in your neck and can't feel your arm because you never fixed your leaking roof two years ago. They fire me to go get an MRI and painkillers indefinitely because they don't want to have a talk about their house. And so it sounds like my biggest barrier is your biggest barrier. And I am 1000% in this to stop that because I don't know what else to do. What, um, what would it look like to have someone from your, your team like come to one of our homes here and what, what, would, what would the kind of testing of it or verification of it that we it don't is? don't do any testing. That's what sets us apart is we are aware of all of the actual failures in like mold testing. If our team or anyone from our team came to your house to test it in any way, it would literally be to use our hypersensitivity senses, which no oh. one believes us about in the main industries to say, do we feel good here or do we not? And so that, I, that would be our test. That would be, okay. So I could arrange for you, for you, your group to come and have a weekend in a earth block home, an, an Adobe home, and maybe, and maybe write a testimony. We would know very quickly if we felt healthy there or not. And if we could make a testimony of feeling healthy in something like that, that would be a very bold statement because we all suffer just beyond, just beyond. But there's no kind of scientific test, like some, I don't know. That's the issue that you're facing is that the current testing, even when somebody who has mold in their house has a test, they could have a false sense of security with nothing showing on the test. Even when people who are hypersensitive, like me, Eric, and Alicia, there is no test that exists that can find our hypersensitivity and this is our greatest issue people don't believe what we're saying and civilians look if the technology exists we don't have access to it and we're not getting access to it we are forced to rely on our senses and that is the trouble with the population that we serve is no test can prove to them what their problem is Uh and so they're you know, they get, they get misled. They just get, they just get told that the test showed their houses are fine. The Mm -hmm. remediation is complete. And because they're still sick, they have these six other autoimmune conditions, arthritis and digestive problems. And sorry, you can't tolerate bleach. You're probably too stressed. My methodology during the uh, Lake Tahoe outbreak, when people were becoming chemically sensitive, was to take them to various buildings to uh, assess their response. And part of that was to go to old abandoned buildings, which tended to be fine, or like I say, to the adobe buildings out at Fort Churchill, where they were also fine. Mm-hmm. So there was a, um, a problem with modern construction and going back to the old ways with low chemicals, low mold, people felt great would recover. But when we compare our hypersensitivity, even by repeated exposures, repeated assessments of taking hypersensitive people out to these places, we would then subject our researchers and doctors 
to the test to finding out if they could correlate their test results with our perceptions. And every time they fail miserably. I hate hearing that. I mean, I mentioned some grants that are becoming available. I mean, I'm looking for for ideas to do, you know, studies with. So, you know, there's also a, a medical organization, environmental, sorry, I was talking to my doctor neighbor, um, Academy of Environmental Medicine, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. There could be a, a wing of the medical industry, such as maybe this association that could, that's really looking now at air quality and... Now, unfortunately, these are the very people that are fighting against us. Oh. Because they've okay. determined that their tests are the gold standard. And if our sensitivity doesn't match their test, we are dismissed as being kooks, lunatics. Yeah. Well, we need, to, we need to bridge this gap, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a major reason why there's a lot of suppression of this. And it's because it would basically tear down the insurance industry. There's a reason your housing company isn't the primary way of building, even though it's better for everyone's yeah. health, because it would take away from medical insurance, pharmacy dollars. I mean, that's yeah. you guys using a, a house as healthcare destroys all their healthcare costs. But we're at the point where we literally need our housing to be our healthcare. I mean, yeah. our air quality and where we live absolutely is our healthcare. Yeah. In my opinion. There are tests. There are, you know, there's ERMI tests that show, you know, what's settling on the surfaces of your home. There's air tests, you know, they suck the air out of your home to check, but they have pros and cons. And yeah. right. You're not always gonna find stachybotrys in an air test. Yeah. Those tests are completely fraudulent and the yeah. people who sell those tests are aware of their limitations. Yeah. Well, if we could if we could arrange for a, a weekend visit and a testimony written by someone from your team, I'd be really. I have I have clients that I'm sure would be open to this, and we would um, be happy to help you, and we would be honored yeah. to yeah. to do that because if we could all find what part of what I'm looking for too is as a health provider who has now realized that the tools that I relied on to help people heal are no longer adequate for today's current environmental issues, how can I, with integrity, recommend any healthcare tool? It mm -hmm. literally comes down to where are they going to spend time to be healthy? This is the new form of medicine. Yeah, yeah. We, we, right. could, build, we could build a city. We need to build cities. Yeah. At least a city. I have us. 20 acres in Oaxaca, and Alicia is getting land in the state, so we can go international. We're serious. We're, de we're desperate for change. I mean, yeah. we give in the towel every day at 5 o'clock because we're so overwhelmed with yeah. not being able to help. Right? It's clear that if you've got a good roof on an adobe house, it'll last forever. Yeah, the idea is a good pair of boots and a good hat. And again, I, I do feel like a shift is happening. I, we are seeing more thoughtful developers that are not caring just about the bottom dollar, but about, there's there's one <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that I'm talking to that, that I think that, you know, can start to create these healthy communities. And it involves things that we all want, like food production and green energy and um, community and, you know, all these things that bring health and wellness so let's do more um and support together you know again i mentioning some of these other products i there's a our clients are 
wide a variety as what as, as deep as this topic. So let's kind of go offline and talk about kind of um, a testimony that we can prepare. Absolutely. We'll definitely link up after this interview to see what we can do to help the many that are suffering and learn more about Adobe houses and check them out and really help you out with your white paper. So we look forward to doing that. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. It's been a wonderful conversation with Jim and Lisa. The work that they're doing is just amazing. It seems like we have lost touch with these type of buildings and and building in this manner. As we mentioned before, a lot of the old structures that are thousands of years old are still standing and those structures were made out of adobe blocks so we really need to look into the past really try to bring that wisdom to the future and know that there are options there are more resilient options for housing that can actually meet what we're experiencing today in the world climate changes is a real thing and we're seeing flooding and fires and the infrastructure that we have currently just isn't strong enough to bear the environmental weight that we are now all experiencing. So thank you again. Please like, share, comment in our content. Head over to our Patreon and GoFundMe pages to support this podcast. Thank you again. We'll see you next time.